What are our core values? What is it that prepares and equips us to engage in radical gospel-driven personal relationships? It's worship. That's why the nine-year-old and the 98-year-old can gather in the same place and bring worship and adoration to God because primarily, first and foremost, we are a people who worship and we delight to worship Him. Welcome to First and Foremost, a weekly broadcast of First Presbyterian Church in the heart of downtown Greenville. Senior Pastor Richard Gibbons invites you to join us as we study God's Word together and discover what is first and foremost in our lives. Our scripture reading today comes from Psalm 84, and we're reading verses 1 through 10 of Psalm 84. You'll also find it on page 922, 922 of the Church Bible. Last Sunday morning, we began a new series of studies entitled The Contagious Church, and today we're continuing that series as we turn to this psalm of praise and adoration and worship. Psalm 84, beginning at verse 1. The psalmist begins this psalm with some of the best-known words in all of the Psalter, and he writes, "'How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord Almighty! My soul yearns and even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God.'" Even the sparrow has found a home and a swallow, a nest for herself, a place where she may have her young, a place near your altar. O Lord Almighty, my King and my God, blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, who have set their hearts on pilgrimage as they pass through the valley of Baca, They make it a place of springs. The autumn rains also cover it with pools. They go from strength to strength till each appears before God in Zion. Hear my prayer, O Lord Almighty. Listen to me, O God of Jacob. Look upon your shield, O God. Look with favor on your anointed one. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. Amen, and we trust that God will bless to us this reading of His Holy Word. As you know, last Sunday morning we did begin a new series of studies called Contagious Church, and we said during that study that a contagious church is a place of grace, a place of grace where you meet with the living God. Also, it's a place of learning. It's a place where you learn of Him and have the Scriptures open to us, impact our lives, and shape and fashion us. A place of grace, a place of learning. We also said last Sunday that it's a place of endurance, a place where we shouldn't be hesitant to ask the tough questions about both our own lifestyles and our relationship with the Lord, And then finally we said, and ultimately we said, it's a place of engagement with God. And it's that theme of a place of engagement with God that flows over into our study this morning. Because if we are saying a contagious church is a place of grace, this morning as we come and study this psalm, we're also saying a contagious church 
is a place of worship. A place of worship. Right at the top of our list, immediately after a place of grace, it's a place of worship. And so the principles we find here, I hope, will speak to us this morning. But before we get into our text, let me, I hope, give an illustration that will shed light on where we're going. I listened to a colleague a few weeks back, and he used a very fine illustration of years ago, maybe 20, 25 years ago, when he was first a pastor. A couple asked, them, asked him to chat with their teenage daughter. She was 16 years old. Over the last two or three months, she'd become a little withdrawn, a little quieter. And when he sat down and chatted with her, he said, I wanted to get to know her a little. I asked her about friends. How were things going in school? What was her relationship with her parents like? And so on. And he said, the first couple of meetings were fairly straightforward. He said, but when we met the third time, he said, she got a little frustrated with me. And he had been talking to her about the impact of the gospel on her life, the difference Christ makes. And she got frustrated, and this is what she said. I wrote down as he was telling the story. She said, yes, I know that Christ loves me. I know that he saved me. I know that I will go to live with him in heaven forever. But what good is that when the boys in school won't even look at me? And of course, as adults, we smile about that. But that was a very real problem for a 16-year-old. Of course, she's now married and has uh, children of her own, and life is very good. But at 16 years old, she was struggling to find her identity, navigate her way through this male-female, boyfriend-girlfriend relationship thing. And what she needed most was something that would give her self-esteem, encourage her, and give her joy in her day-to-day living. Now, that illustration tells us this, and it highlights for us a problem that we as a congregation often have, and it's this, that when we open up the Scriptures on a Sunday morning, the temptation is always to think that here are dry, abstract theological concepts and never make the connection between the biblical principles and how we live our life each day. So my prayer for us this morning, as we get further and further into this psalm, is that God, in all of His love and grace, will help us take what can be dry, abstract concepts and apply them to our lives in such a way that our minds will be informed and then reformed and excited and then touch and enliven the heart. So that's my prayer for us this morning as we come to this wonderful psalm. Now let's go to the psalm itself. It opens with those well-known words that we noticed a moment or two ago, how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord Almighty. And then the psalmist pours out his heart on paper, and he writes, my soul yearns, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. A number of the psalms were written by David, some by Moses. But this psalm, we don't know who wrote Psalm 84. And in fact, because we don't know who wrote it, we are kind of struggling a little to find out the exact context but a number of Old Testament scholars will tell us this, 
that there's a whole section further on in the Psalms from Psalm 120 all the way through to Psalm 134, and they are called the Psalms of Ascent. And those are the Psalms that were sung by the people of Israel as they were making their way up towards Jerusalem, towards the temple, for the great feasts and holidays of the Jewish calendar. And as you get into this Psalm, you can imagine the author of the Psalm thinking ahead to Jerusalem and the temple as he's making his way with his family and folks would gather several times a year in the temple in Jerusalem to worship God for the big holidays uh, and festivals. And you can imagine the thoughts going through the psalmist's mind as he's walking with his family towards Jerusalem, and he cannot wait to get there. He cannot wait to go into the outer precincts and then into the temple itself. And in his mind, he is saying, how lovely is thy dwelling place, O Lord Almighty. My soul yearns, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God as he's imagining what that will be like. And I dare to suggest this this morning, that for most of us, before we arrived at church or switched on the television to watch and engage with the service this morning, our thoughts may well have been on what's happening later today or an event that happened last week, or the busyness of the week ahead. But there's a sobering reminder from this psalm that when we gather for worship, our heart and mind and soul should soar heavenward. Here is the pattern for us, so that when we gather in those couple of minutes before the service begins, our prayer ought to be, how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord Almighty. My heart and my soul cry out for the living God. What the psalmist is reminding us of is this. And the psalmist also tells us it's not so much the place, but the person. And it's the person that makes the place lovely and wonderful. That's why he begins the way he begins. And he says, how lovely is your dwelling place. Father, it's lovely because you are there. And then he adds, O Lord Almighty. He wasn't caught up with the place. He was caught up and enthralled and excited by the person, O Lord Almighty. And when we gather Sunday morning, and when we gathered round the table earlier today, it was the person of Christ that accomplished God's salvation for us. We are caught up with Him and His love and His grace. And what you see in these opening verses is a holy homesickness He's homesick for that which is holy. He can't wait to get there, to be lost in wonder, love, and praise. That's what's going on here. Now, you may be saying, okay, Richard, I'm with you. I get that. But when you talk about worship, you kind of use that term for everything that happens in a service on a Sunday morning. And you're right. Because worship isn't just singing hymns. It isn't just prayer. It isn't just the reading of Scripture. It is all of these things together 
combined. That's what worship is, and that's why we intentionally gather this way on Sunday morning. And what the psalmist is saying is this, that worship is much more than an activity. Let me explain. I have read multiple volumes on worship, what it is, how to go about it, what makes for contagious worship, but I have to confess this is the best definition of worship I've ever come across. Now, if you're watching my television this morning, you may see this definition coming up on your screen, so pay attention for the definition coming up. It's written by Archbishop William Temple, who was the Archbishop of the Church of England uh, back in the Second World War, 1941 till 1943, and he died uh, rather early. And this is how he defines worship. He writes, worship is the submission of all of our nature to God. It is the quickening of the conscience by His holiness, the nourishment of the mind with His truth, the purifying of the imagination by His beauty, the opening of the heart to His love, the surrender of the will to His purpose, all this gathered up in adoration, the most selfless emotion of which our nature is capable. That is worship. That is a spectacular definition of what happens on Sunday morning when we gather for worship, we engage with the person of God Himself, and we worship Him. And worship is so multidimensional that it applies to every part of us. Look at it again. The submission of our nature to God. It's not just the submission of our nature. The submission of our nature, all that we are, to God. Secondly, it is the quickening of our conscience by His holiness. And if on a Sunday morning we have been in the middle of a service, spending time in the Scriptures, and God has been convicting you of a sin in your life you need to take action on, and drawing you to that deeper place with Him, that's what's going on. It's a quickening of our conscience by His holiness. That's the moment when you are overwhelmed by His transcendent majesty and wonder and glory and love for you. That's what's happening when the conscience is quickened by His holiness. Fourthly, the nourishment of the mind with His truth. Each Sunday morning, we're going to spend time intentionally in God's Word because the Word of God speaks to our mind, informs our mind, then reforms our mind, and then it impacts the heart. It always reaches the heart through the mind. Remember the famous words of the Apostle Paul, be transformed through the renewing of your mind. That's what happens Sunday morning when we engage with the Word of God. And then he adds, the purifying of the imagination by his beauty. Folks, I have to tell you, the older I'm getting, the more grumpy I'm begetting. And I switch on television, and I flick through the channels, and I think, good night, I've got 104 channels, and I can't find a thing. And then I'll sometimes, in fact, it happened last night, I, was, I had finished preparing for this morning around 7.30, and I thought, I'll sit down and I'll watch about an hour's worth of a program before getting ready for bed and getting under the covers. And what I watched on television for the first three minutes was so dreadful. 
I thought to myself, I do not want this stuff in my mind as I prepare for Sunday morning. That's what Temple is talking about when he says the purifying of our imagination by his beauty, the opening of the heart to his love, the surrender of our will to his purpose. All of this gathered up in adoration, the most selfish emotion, selfless emotion of which our nature is capable. That is worship. That's what it means to have a constructive preoccupation with God Himself. Before we go any further this morning, let me ask you please, and if it was just you and I out together having lunch in an intimate setting somewhere, I've asked you about your family and how the summer has been, how your grandchildren are, what about the children off at college, tell me a little about your life and so on. And I began to drill a little deeper and a little deeper and a little deeper and asked you, when was the last time in the midst of a worship service that your heart and mind and soul soared heavenward and your heart gave praise and thanks to God for all of His wonder and beauty and grace and love, and you were impacted and overwhelmed by Him. That's the point where you move from singing hymns to worshiping God and engaging with Him when you are lost in wonder, love, and praise. That's what makes a church a contagious, excuse me, that's what makes a church a contagious church. Because when people bump up against someone who is contagious, they pick up what they have. And when folks visit us on a Sunday morning, my single greatest prayer for them is this, Father, let our visitors this morning engage with you. Let them see your love and grace. That's what the psalmist is focusing on. That's when we move from activity to worship. And so, all of that is in those first four, five verses. Then he takes us a step further. In verse 5, he writes, "'Blessed are those whose strength is in you, who have set their hearts on pilgrimage.'" As they pass through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. And let me pause for a second. Three times in this psalm, the author uses the word blessed. Verse 4, he uses it wistfully. Blessed are those who trust in you. And then verse 5, he uses it resolutely. Blessed are those whose strength is in you. Then right at the end of the psalm, he writes, blessed is the man who trusts in you. And he uses it with that sense of being wistful and resolute, and then with deep contentment, blessed is the man who trusts you. But notice what else he says in verse 5, blessed are those whose strength is in you. You see the point? He's not saying, Father, thank you for blessing me with strength to face the challenges that lie before me. It has a note of that, but that's not where the language is pointing. 
Blessed is the man whose strength is in you. And it's almost as if verses 5 through 9, the psalmist is looking back to the last time he was in Jerusalem, possibly 12 months ago. And he's writing here, blessed are those who are pilgrims of yours, who are following you, even though they walk through the valley of Baca. Baca was a dry and a desert area. It was an arid place where there is no nourishment, no food, no water to renew and revive. It's a dry place. And what the psalmist is saying here is this, that when we go through days that are so challenging, that we can't find ourselves in the presence of God. We have prayed and prayed, and it feels as if there is no answer, and my faith has become dry and arid. He is saying, keep on going. Keep on going, because your strength is found in Him. It's not that He strengthens you, although from time to time He does, but he's saying, the source of my strength is not in myself. I'm not walking with Christ day by day simply by persevering and enduring. I am walking with Him day by day because my strength is in Him. He sustains me. He enables me. He gives me my strength. He is my focus. O Lord Almighty. That's what the psalmist is saying here. And then he takes us towards verses 8, 9, and 10, as we wrap things up this morning. And what does he say? He says in verse 9, or verse 10 rather, he says, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. And if we are saying, we've looked at the essentials of worship, and the essence of worship, we can also say this, the essence of our worship defines and drives the expression of our worship. Now, if you're getting notes down this morning, try and get that down. The essence of our worship drives the expression of our worship. And by that, he means this. The essence of our worship is God Himself, and therefore the expression of their worship will always be heavenward, always focus on Him, always highlight His love and grace and goodness. Now, if you're visiting First Pres this morning, not only do we give you a warm welcome, we want you to understand this, that if you come back to worship here and you worship regularly with us, the essence of our worship will always be focused on Him. My job on Sunday morning is not to be witty and entertaining. You certainly know that's not true, but I, that's not where our focus lies. My focus is on Him, because that's the focus of the Scripture. And if the essence of our worship defines and drives the expression of our worship, we'll always focus on Him. That's why we began this morning with, in Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my strength, my all. The focus is there, and will always be there. And this is why. Now, please hear this as we wrap things up this morning. It's this. There is a world of a difference between the writer in Psalm 84 and you and I today. 
there is a cataclysmic shift between both. Because what we have today, those who lived in the Old Testament longed for. They were passionate about. They had an appetite and a hunger for what God meant to them. But the seismic difference is this, that we live in a post-Pentecostal period. Three Ps, post-Pentecostal period. And that means this, that on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit of God did not simply come to anoint individual people. He didn't give them strength to take them through a difficult period. He came to dwell within their hearts and to live within them for the rest of eternity. And we live in the period that Isaiah and Jeremiah and Moses and David and others longed for to have the Holy Spirit live within us. That's the difference. And please understand this. Because the Holy Spirit lives within us, because He shapes and fashions our heart and our mind and our soul, for us today, worship is not an activity. Let, let me rephrase that. It is an activity, but it's not primarily an activity. Worship is not primarily an activity because it is part of our identity. Identity. It's who we are. And that's why on a Sunday morning, if you are singing one of the great hymns of the faith, and your heart and mind and soul are soaring heavenward, and you look at the person next to you, and their eyes are shut, and their head is back, and they're singing glory and praise and honor to God, that's worship. That's contagious. That's engagement with the living God. That's why we can say, how lovely is thy dwelling place, O Lord Almighty, because we are caught up with and overwhelmed with Him. What is it that defines us? What are our core values? What is it that prepares and equips us to engage in radical gospel-driven personal relationships? It's worship. That's why the nine-year-old and the 98-year-old can gather in the same place and bring worship and adoration to God, because primarily, first and foremost, we are a people who worship, and we delight to worship Him. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for this remarkable passage of Scripture. And it seems to us and never a Sunday goes by when you don't speak to us from your word, when you don't engage our minds and inform our hearts. Father, help us please to be a church who gladly submit our nature to you, who understand the quickening of our conscience by your holiness, the nourishment of our minds by your truth, the purifying of our imagination by your beauty, and the opening of our hearts to your love. Father, bless us, encourage us, take us home excited and contagious because we have met with you, the living God. In Jesus' name we pray.
Amen. Jesus said, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Do you need prayer for something or someone in your life? First Presbyterian Church offers a healing prayer service each Tuesday evening at 7 p.m. Our prayer ministers will quietly intercede for you or anyone you are representing who needs prayer for physical healing, emotional healing, or forgiveness. Our hope is that you will encounter Jesus, the healer and redeemer, in a deep and meaningful way.